Welcome to the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is David Cushnan, Head of Content here at Leaders. With me, John Porch, Lead Writer at the Leaders Performance Institute. John, hello. Hello, David. How are you doing? I am very well. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Can't complain today. Super duper. We are delving back into the Leaders Performance Institute archives once again, are we not? Absolutely, David. And this session dates from London 2014 and it features two highly esteemed coaches, namely Andy Flower, who had just finished a highly successful stint with the England men's cricket team at that point, and John Longmire, who is still the head coach of the Australian Football League Sydney Swans. Unsurprisingly, the focus for moderator Dr Steve Bull was leadership at the thick end of elite sport. And what else are we going to hear? Well, Andy gets things off to a flyer by delving into his background growing up in Zimbabwe at a time when Robert Mugabe was asserting his grip on power. And he talks about how that volatile environment, as he called it, influenced his character first as a player and then as a coach. Another thing that stuck out was John's take on a high-performance environment. The Swans have come close to winning the AFL Premiership in recent seasons, but judging by what he said on stage in London, that won't be considered good enough. So he described how the hunger for improvement is insatiable and how a coach can never afford to assume and can never stop looking for the next nugget that will help take that performance to the next level. Back in time we go, John Longmire, Andy Flower from London 2014. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the session. I'm delighted to be on stage with two truly elite performers uh, who've actually been elite as players, as coaches, and now in roles as, as leaders. So uh, I don't think there's any need for preamble or introductions. Let's just get stuck straight into the discussion. Um, Andy, I'm going to turn to you first. Um, much of the contemporary literature on leadership and coaching talks a lot about the importance of being authentic. Uh, that seems to be de rigueur these days uh, in the literature. Um, I'm interested in your reflections uh, from a personal point of view. What do you think being authentic is and how do you go about developing authenticity as a coach or a leader? Well, I suppose the early uh, development um, of authenticity uh, in that context is, um, is formed in your formative years, whether they're really early on or a little later during you know, the early part of your career. Um, and then uh, once you're getting clarity on your principles as a leader. Um, my, my formative years were initially in South Africa and then Zimbabwe. Um, and um, and the, the sort of, I heard a phrase uh, recently about forging meaning and, and building identity. And I suppose my meaning in those early days was forged um, in, uh, in, in the context of Zimbabwean cricket, which is a very small uh, cricketing nation, and we, were, we had been given this opportunity to play international cricket. And my meaning then was uh, fighting for the justification for that, uh, um, that opportunity to play uh, test cricket. Um, my, uh, the building of my identity, I suppose, as a, as, a, as a person, you know, what are you about as a person? What, are you, what do you stand for? Those early, um, early lessons for me uh, were, were formed um, in, in quite a, a volatile environment. Um, my, my father strangely moved us up from South Africa to Rhodesia prior to the end of the Civil War. And then as, uh, as teenagers, we watched the, um, the change from white minority rule in, uh, in Rhodesia to a black majority rule. Uh, which was inevitable and, and absolutely right. Um, but it was fascinating to watch. But, and then, then I watched the, 
the the uh, sort of gradual degradation of the country, I suppose, into some, into a, a dictatorship. Um, and uh, and so I, I, you know, I we lived in a police state, um, and that formed some of my early uh, principles. And I, I had the opportunity uh, to. Uh, um, uh, li uh, live and grow in that sort of environment, which was a uh, fascinating time for me. So uh, we had, um, so I started by saying authenticity is about uh, being yourself. Um, but, you know, just being yourself as a leader is not enough. Um, you can't, I don't like the line that some people trot out of, I was just being honest, um, because it sounds like a bit of a cop out to me. You can't just be honest, you can't just be yourself. There are other skills that you need. And I think that phrase from the Goffey and Jones book about being yourself with skill is absolutely right. Um, you need those skills, you need the skills of uh, communication or uh, uh, the leadership skills, you know, the skills of running effective meetings. Um, the skill of the, the, your, your, maybe not a skill, but your understanding of empathy. Those are all things that you've got to grow on top of just being yourself, I think. And that, that would be my version of authenticity. So, so be yourself with skill, of course, is driven in large part by developing your self-awareness, you know, knowing your strengths, knowing your weak points. What are the most effective ways that you've experienced in your playing, coaching, and leadership career? Um, what are the most effective ways in which you've developed your own self-awareness over the years? Well, it's a crucial part of it, absolutely. So understanding what your values and what your beliefs are. And uh, you know, I'm assuming we're going to talk about cultures and environments soon. And it's those cultures and environments that shape us. Um, they shape your values and they shape your beliefs. And, um, and so being aware enough to, uh, to understand what you're about as a bloke um, and using, using people that you trust around you to uh, give you honest feedback um, is one of the crucial aspects of it. I was lucky I had a really uh, good management team around me, um, some experienced coaches, um, some young energetic people with great, uh, great creative ideas. Um, and getting feedback from them and soliciting feedback from them was, a, um, was one of the ways in which I try to grow my, my self-awareness. You spend a fair bit of time and, and resource on developing a sort of personal awareness in players in your role with England. You know, you took them off to, to different environments and exposed them to other areas of life outside cricket. Why was that so important to you, to do that with them? Well, it was important to me personally because, uh, you know, my, my responsibility as a leader in that England cricket environment was not only to, uh, to grow the athlete, um, and to win things, uh, but it, it, it was also to grow the person. Um, and, uh, and I suppose selfishly, um, my, uh, my principle was also the, the more well-rounded you are as a person, the better able you are to handle success and handle defeat. Um, you know, the better you understand the world around you, the better you understand the people around you. I thought that would give uh, our players um, a, a much better uh, a much better foundation on which to handle those twin imposters. So we did things like uh, connect with British history um, in the trenches um, over the channel. 
Um, we, uh, we, we took them to schools and orphanages in India. We had a close association with an acid burns hospital in Dhaka. So um, those types of experiences, I, I thought, would give them a better grounding, a better perspective on life. Mm. John, if I can turn to you, Annie's just said he feels the more rounded a player is, the better they'll cope with the, the successes and failures during a career. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think that's, um, that's a, a reasonable comment. I, I think that the most important thing is the, uh, whether you're a coach or a player, is um, the, the ability of self-awareness. You mentioned it before. And, and um, whether you're a coach, player or staff member, yeah, to understand what your strengths and weaknesses are and to be able to turn the mirror on yourself first. It's very difficult, I believe, as a coach to be able to manage people and get the most out of people if you don't first and foremost know yourself. Mm. And it's, it's a, not an easy thing to look at the mirror sometimes and confront your strengths and weaknesses, and I've got plenty of weaknesses, hopefully a couple of strengths, but the same with the player. And, if you're able to identify what your strengths and weaknesses are and surround yourself with people that can help and are able to identify and assist your areas of improvement, once again as a player or coach, that helps you be able to write out the, the highs and lows of the inevitable career that you have. How about taking feedback or soliciting feedback from players, from, from other coaches, um, which is generally considered to be a pretty powerful way of developing self-awareness? Um, can you give us your thoughts on how you've approached the whole feedback uh, part of the environment in the past? Yeah, we have a, a leadership group. Essentially what we do at the start of every season, we sit down and establish a list of behaviours that our team would like to be seen as. And we have a discussion, an open discussion, amongst all of our players on what we'd like to be seen as and how we'd like to represent our football club on and off the field. And, that, and then that boils down to a couple of key words and and then ultimately after that we elect our leadership group based on those behaviours. Now they're not necessarily the best players but they're the best type of behaviours that our team would like to be represented by. Their leaders are elected and then assessed throughout the year. It's not just a, a cigar club that the boys go off and have a little meeting and have a cup of tea and a scone. Um, those players are, are accountable to their teammates those discussions are, and those votes are made public, you read them out and all it is is a tool to create open dialogue and if that's the sort of environment you've got, hopefully those discussions happen naturally and it keeps everyone accountable and importantly when things go wrong it allows you to go back to a road map and, and find your way through it and inevitably things go wrong. And if one of those players in that leadership group um, felt that they wanted to give you some constructive feedback, some challenging feedback, how would they go about doing that and how, how would you go about receiving it? It's, uh, in an odd, we'd like to get to the stage, and we believe we are at the stage where it happens informally, but we had to go through and set up some situations initially early that, that happened in a structured sense. So it would be a situation like this, and be splitting up into different groups and they'd be going through it, essentially what you start, stop and keep doing. And discussions that happen amongst the playing group or the leadership group about the areas you need to improve on or, or the three words that best represent you. And you have a sick feeling in your stomach, as a player does, when you get that type of feedback. Not everything's good. Um, but what it does do is lays everything to bear and, 
helps everyone identify what your strengths and weaknesses are as a player or a coach. And once you know each other, you're able to manage each other and have better relationships and having better communication, which is ultimately the key to coaching. That's a, a really nice segue into the next theme I'd like to explore with you, John, uh, and that's the whole notion of high-performing cultures, high-performing environments. You know, this is, these are buzzwords these days in top-level sport. You've certainly been uh, around uh, a team which has created a very robust high-performance environment. We heard um, earlier about the successes your team has had 15 out of the last 16 years. Your team's got to the top eight. Um, and I've heard you talk earlier this morning, actually, about your mission being to buck the system. Um, your sport has a draft system, which is set up to, to try and avoid a situation where the same team wins all the time. Um, so I assume it's really important for you to create this high-performance environment. How have you gone about doing that? What are the secrets you'd be prepared to share with us today on your successes? Uh, set the bar high, and it never assume, and it never stops. And it's, it's constant, it's all the time, it's every day. Um, and it's not just you that drives it. Importantly, you've got to have your players drive that and be responsible because it's impossible as a coach or a manager of anything to be there every minute of the day. I'm certainly not there on a Saturday night when our players maybe go out and have a couple of drinks after a game. I'm certainly not there Sunday or Monday or Tuesday at night with their families or away on holidays. So ultimately, we try and get buy-in from from their peers and, and be able to ultimately live those behaviours all the time and on a consistent basis. Uh, but it never stops and you're constantly reassessing it, you're constantly looking at areas to improve and you can never assume that you're always on top of it. It's, a, it's an every minute of every day type of thing. So you're talking about this hunger for improvement on a daily basis. Everything that you do, we're constantly seeking ways of improving. Andy, I know that's been at the heart of your coaching leadership philosophy for many years now. Um, I'm interested in how you maintain that kind of uh, environment or mindset without being overly pressurising on the players you know, and avoiding the situation where nothing's ever good enough because we've always got to do it better and that actually ends up... Um, demotivating rather than motivating. How do you get the balance right between really, really pushing them but, but not pushing them to the point where they get demotivated? We try to talk to the players about the need, the need to be pushed. So, uh, you know, one of the exciting things about playing international sport is that um, you are able to push the boundaries and you should be pushing the boundaries. You should be pushing your, your own personal boundaries. You know, certainly if I reflect back on my playing days, um, one of my biggest drivers, um, personally, was to see how good I could be in the, on the international stage. Um, so we want to help them maximize their potential. And uh, part of that is pushing them. Um, so, but we, we, uh, I was a firm believer in trying to take pressure off the players close to competition. And I think that's part of our jobs as the leaders in those environments to, to really, because they've got enough on their plate uh, around that time. So we looked for pockets of time, even in the crazily uh, busy fixture list that the, the England international team has to abide by. We looked for pockets of time where um, we almost negotiated with the players and said, look, the, these are the times where the coaches are going to be pushing you. Um, and I think they, they were a little skeptical at first, but they, grow, they grew to enjoy it. 
um, and they grew to embrace it, and they realized, look, the intent is good, the intent is for our own personal growth, um, and it'll culminate in us having better team results. If I can just come in there, you talked about negotiating with the players, and, and that they might not have taken to it straight away. What kind of pushback did you get? Because it seems reasonable from the outside to think, you know, high-performance environment, got to get better every day. Uh, how did they push back against that? that well, I, I'll give you an example, I suppose, to, uh, to illustrate it. It would be um, when I first started coaching with the England side as an assistant coach <coughs> under Peter Moores. Uh, one of the things I, I, I was really um, surprised by was the batsmen only liked uh, facing cross-seam throwdowns. Now, to non-cricketers, that means the ball's not going to deviate laterally at all. Um, so it's good for building confidence, but it's not real confidence, because in the middle, people don't bowl cross-seam, because the bowlers aren't stupid. They, you know, their primary job is to move the ball sideways, to beat the bat. Um, so um, challenging the, 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 the balance between the guys wanting to feel confident, which is absolutely right, um, but also getting to uh, the point where um, you're explaining to them, look, we need to grow your skills. You know, no matter, no matter how mentally strong you are, um, you've got to be extremely skillful to make it at the top. And we don't only want to make it, we want to thrive. We want to, be, we want to excel and we want to dominate. Um, so we need to grow your skills. So it was through uh, conversations like that that we, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was nice to see that 12 months later no one did cross-team cross throwdowns. And uh, unsurprisingly, our, um, our batting results started to pick up. And then in the lead-up to a match, players were given much more flexibility to make their own choices about what they needed to do to get themselves in the right mindset for the big game? Yeah, so a typical uh, lead into a test match for us uh, would have been, uh, it's, it's usually um, after travel, a two-day lead into a test match. So two days out would be a coach's day where we, you know, that was one of those pockets that I talked about earlier where we were allowed to push their boundaries um, and, make it, and make it fun and exciting and mm. uh, whatever. But then the day before and any time on the morning of a five-day game, that was their time. And they could choose, they could choose to practice or, or not practice out of some uh, uh, little areas of, uh, of team time. John, how much players, uh, how much player choice is there in your environment in the, the day or two before a game? Uh, we have our main training session two days out from a game, in which case it's an, it's an hour's training session. Um, our guys in our sport run sort of 14, 15, 16 kilometres every game, so the early part of the week is actually quite recovery-based. Um, and then we have an hour of training session on a Thursday. And, and then really that afternoon we talk about, our playing group talks about the type of behaviours they'd like to reflect in the game. As a, as a group, which is essentially player-led, and, and then on a Friday, a bit similar to some of the other sports, a bit similar to rugby league, and I guess it's almost a, um, some, I think you call it a, a captain's run, where you just have a, a light kick, goals, skill-based, um, essentially a feel-good session to be able to get yourself in the right frame of mind, knowing full well that the work's been done beforehand. Uh, sticking with the high-performance culture uh, theme, one of the tensions um, that we have in, in top-level sport, not dissimilar to business actually, is getting the balance right between winning today and strategically planning for the future. You know, we have to win today, otherwise we're out of a job generally in top-level sport. 
but we've got to be planning two years, three years, four years, more sometimes out. Uh, what are the ways in which you've managed those tensions and got the balance right between those two perspectives uh, as a leader of a high-performance environment? Um, in the team environment, with regards to the players on a day-to-day, week-to-week, we have a mentoring system that our older players look after two or three of the younger players, and therefore it keeps the older players accountable. Uh, it's also about the younger players coming through and, and teaching them some of the skill set and the knowledge that those older players have got. Quite often our best teachers are our players and they teach those younger players some of the actions, the technical part of the game, but the behavioural part of the game, uh, what to do away when no one's looking, uh, to be able to give them that knowledge, to pass on that knowledge. So that's the day to day. And I guess the year to year and the planning and the ultimate overview of the organisation is very much about the communication managing upwards from myself as a coach to the CEO to the board and making sure they know more than they need to and are fully aware of where we are and where we sit and some of the dangers and some of the holes in our organisation at any given time and there's constant holes in your organisation as far as where you'd like to get better in your team structure, your recruiting, your player uh, team, how you'd need to, to be a part of that and we, I find as though I spend a lot of time making sure that our CEO and our board are fully aware of that so when the inevitable hiccups come along that they are understanding that there is a longer term view. It's certainly interesting in this, you know, certainly in football over here, that that's one of the real challenges. I think it'd be, it's a tough environment. Another feature of modern day top level sport is large support teams. So we have loads of specialist coaches around the place, we've got scientists, we've got medics, you know, the players have pretty much got everything at their disposal. So a couple of questions. Uh, please, if you could address them. Firstly, as the leader of the environment, how do you go about managing a large support team as well as a bunch of players? And then the second part of the question is, how do you ultimately keep things simple in the player's mind? Because there's always a potential to overcomplicate things with all these ologists and scientists and specialist coaches around the place. How do you keep the player focused on, on the simple things that are going to work for them on the pitch? Well, the first part of the question would be to, to make sure that we've got the best people in the most important roles. Now, the key roles that, um, about us in performance, which is what we're all about, is, is our, we, we operate under a salary cap in a draft situation. So. Um, we just can't go out and buy players. So obviously our recruiting manager is critical and he needs to be one of the best in the business and I need to have a very strong relationship with him. Uh, we then have to make sure our conditioning coaches is, is one of the best to make sure our players are fit. Our physio needs to be one of the best. Our CEO needs to be one of the best. Um, and those core relationships, the right people and the strength of those relationships are absolutely critical. It's impossible, in my view, to manage to the level that I'd like to manage the staff uh, in season when you've got the pressures of the game, travel, everything, dealing with 45 players, everyone wants to talk to you, everyone wants a discussion, you've got an open door policy, but you've also got 30 staff to manage as well. So those positions in those, those people in those roles are absolutely critical and you've got to have an enormous amount of faith that they're doing what you require them to do and you meet with them regularly and have open discussions and dialogue with them. The second part of the, your, your question would be um, our whole job as coaches and managers is to boil it all down to be as simple as possible. Um, whether there's statistics, whether it's your environment, what it's all about. It's all about performance on match day and you need to make sure that what it, what it gets down to is to 
to cut it all out. And how you do that is, is you establish those list of behaviours and you talk about, it's about winning, but it's about, about more than that. It's about how you act and how you perform and how you deliver in an effort-based way, week in, week out. And if your players, your older players in particular, are driving those standards all the time, and they don't always get it right, but we all make mistakes. Um, we certainly made a mistake grand final day this year. But I've got an enormous amount of faith that we can go back to our roadmap and make sure we re-establish those types of things to be able to, those older players and our experienced boys, to be able to keep driving our younger players, even though they come onto a list and they might be struggling to find their way, that they see that roadmap and are able to, to be able to get on the right path. And it's really important. And Andy, on the same theme, if I can turn to you, you know, I've had this conversation in the past, uh, and it's the challenge of making sure that we don't create a dependency culture with all these coaches and scientists and specialists around the place. So we want an environment where the players can get everything that they need, but we want them to think for themselves, and we don't want them to become dependent on all these uh, experts. Your views on, on how you avoid the pitfall of creating the dependency culture? Well, it's a, in the cricketing, uh, in coaches and, and, and support staff of this sort of uh, level are quite new into, the, in, into cricketing history, if you like. I mean, uh, it, the support staff have grown very quickly. And, um, and the skill of uh, getting the balance right between giving these young guys opportunities to make mistakes and therefore grow, um, to, um, uh, to, to be able to experiment, um, to be able to try all sorts of uh, different techniques or things or principles, um, but also trying to support and guide them and give them some shortcuts uh, and, and help them along the way. It's a, it's a very tricky balance to get. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if we always manage that balance, to be quite uh, frank, um, with the England national side. Um, but I was always cognizant of it. You know, once they step over that boundary line, um, especially in cricket, because you're out there for long periods of time on your own, um, and you, you're, you're making thousands of decisions all the time. You know, it's not like running a 200-meter race, where it's very little decision-making to be made. Um, you know, decision-making is absolutely, absolutely crucial to their chances of success. So they, they need to be um, they, uh, used to making their own decisions, and uh, we need to um, train them to make better, uh, better ones, um, but without stifling some of that individual flair that they might bring um, and that they must bring to the international game to make a difference. Do you have a top tip for training them to make better decisions? Because that feels a bit like the Holy Grail. Well, it does. I mean, what we tried to do was uh, put them under pressure um, in training scenarios and then review in a pretty, in, in as non-judgmental way as possible. Um, but review those and try to grow their decision-making skills through that, that type of uh, experience. So making it experiential rather than classroom-based. Great, thanks. Thanks to you both. You can probably guess I could go all day on this, just love it, but uh, we only have a few minutes left, so I'd like to open it out to the floor, please. Uh, the guys will field a couple of questions from the audience. We have some roving mics. If you'd like to raise your hand, if you have a question for either John or Andy. Hi, thanks very much. Um, Jack Naylor from Real Madrid. Um, just a quick question on, on the end of that discussion. If you've got uh, players in your organization, team, who have a dependency on a certain member of staff, medical, physical, whatever, and you can see it's detrimental to the organization as a whole, 
um, and you try to make a change, the player comes to you and goes, I need that to perform. I'm not going to play well, and it's one, maybe potentially one of your star players. How do you manage that? John, do you want to go first on that one, please? Um, well, ultimately, uh, going back to the, the player drives his own career. We're here to facilitate, hopefully, what is a successful career. Um, but all the recruits that come to our organisation, the, the first discussion I have with them and their parents is that ultimately you'll be deciding how successful you are. Now we'll try and create the best, very best environment, but you're in the driver's seat of your own career. And um, whether they're doctors, physios, or all those people around you, they're just there to assist and help you. They're not your core and not your foundation. And they need to be really aware of that and to be challenged when that becomes an issue. And it's a matter of pointing that out and having constant dialogue and then getting to the stage where um, you are in charge, not me as a coach, um, not the doctor, not the physio, you are in charge and you'll ultimately decide uh, where you go with your career and we're here to help you and we'll do as much as we can to do that, but ultimately it's about you. And did you have a quick answer to that well, question? We had a, we've had a number of situations like that actually um, and the ultimate is not getting into that position in the first place, so uh, educationally the players being aware of exactly what John's talking about. Um, but inevitably, you know, some of those occasions do occur. Um, I think you've got to try and find out the reasons why he's feeling so de dependent on someone else. Um, it's, a, it's a dangerous place to be. Um, so through uh, that sort of communication, you might find reasons why he, he, he is so needy in that area. Um, I think you also need to be communicating really well with uh, whoever he's relying on because they've allowed that relationship to, uh, to grow too, I don't know if grow too strong is uh, perhaps the, the wrong phrase to use, but that's an unhealthy bond ultimately for the player. So you need to, uh, you need to be in constant dialogue uh, with whoever he's become dependent on. I think the most important thing too is, uh, just following on from that, is that you're not going to have all the answers and you're not going to, I think you've got to step aside, put your ego to one side. There might be someone else in your organisation that relates to that particular player better than what you do as the coach. Find that particular player, whether it's another coach or another staff member or another player, and use them. Put the ego in the bag, because ultimately your job is to get the best out of that player. It doesn't matter how you get there. Quite often it's not just you. It's been a great pleasure talking to you guys. I'm sure the audience will want to join me in saying thank you for some really excellent... <laughs>